T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. DGB Nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. It's the first one of the year and as always, joining me on the show is the one and only John Berger. How you doing, sir? Hi, Harold. This is Kermit the Frog. No, sorry. Now, that <laughs> won't make a lot of sense to most non-Americans, I guess. You'd probably get the joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. What can I say? <laughs> I have to come up with something stupid to introduce myself on this every time. It beats just doing a Cockney accent every time. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> because it's, we, we don't want it, you know, same thing becoming the norm. If it, if it, keep it fresh. <laughs> Normal? What's that? It sounds boring. <laughs> so, uh, how's it been with you? Because the last time we spoke was before Christmas. Uh, yeah, that's true. Um I, I will admit to the, those of you who are listening, it has now been less than 24 hours since the world discovered that uh, David Bowie had died, and yeah, I'm I'm still kind of hurting from it. And to so. be to be honest, it's it's something we should talk about really because well, he was the star man, wasn't he? He was, you know. Space Oddity, of course, fits right in with the show. Yeah, and um, well, the 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 man who, who fell to Earth and yep. Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars and everything, Major Tom, the whole lot, the whole lot. <laughs> and, you know, we, we can even go into our end of the month podcast and talk about, you know, Labyrinth, because that, that is still one of my favorite movies. Fantasy. I love yeah, Labyrinth. Definitely. Definitely. He, he was a really good villain in that, actually, I thought. Yep. He played that part very well. It, it's been difficult to take in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's it's definitely on par with uh, when we had the loss of Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, um, that hurt. That hurt too. But um, as I mentioned to you on Twitter earlier, uh, David Bowie had a, quite a strong connection to my hometown. Uh, there was a as a musical club in Hill. It's still going. Uh, it just floats around from venue to venue. Um, but it started in Aylesbury in, in Buckinghamshire, in my, in my hometown, uh, uh, back in the 1960s. And in 1971, before he was really famous, he actually unveiled Ziggy Stardust to the world actually at that musical club. And there was nice. representatives from the record company that uh, he went on to being with uh, that night and they were just blown away by him uh, he, he made three other appearances at the club yeah the the Aylesbury Friars Club is as I say it's been going since the 1960s and everyone I mean if David Bowie's been there I mean everybody's been there <laughs> um, Genesis Queen the Ramones um, you name them they've been there <laughs> yeah, that, that was another one it was it was really scary how what he did paralleled what Freddie Mercury did 
that you know kept his illness quiet that really nobody knew that that he had cancer no he, he hid that for a year and a half yeah and no one really knew that Freddie Mercury had AIDS and then he releases an album and a song basically as a goodbye and a love letter to the fans with Lazarus yeah and just like Freddie Mercury and, and Queen did with the show must go on yeah the, pretty much the whole of that album was a story unfolding and, yep. and I think the, the, the latest album of David Bowie's is exactly the same, which I haven't actually had a listen to yet, which I, might, I must do now. Yeah. Um, and, and you know that by the end of the week, that is going to be the number one album. Probably. I already ordered it. I, I'm old school. I ordered the CD. Actually, I almost ordered the vinyl, except I was like, yeah, that's really high price for the vinyl. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would have. But still, so yeah, it's just one of those... Wow, you know, it's not like I was a huge, huge fan of his, but I know enough of his songs from the '70s and you know from the '80s when MTV was actually worth listening to, unlike nowadays. So, so many of his '80s videos, and I've even got his his Sound Plus Vision record set. Mm-hmm. It's four LPs, all printed on clear virgin vinyl. Wow, it's amazing to look at. This is like late last night when I first saw things past midnight, I think. And it's like, wait a minute, no, 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 this is a hoax, this is a hoax. And it, no, it's now being reported by The Hollywood Reporter. It's yeah. now being reported by Sky News. Uh, I don't think this is a hoax. And I, 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 I go on a lot of forums and things, and I see the news come through the forums. And I'm thinking, yeah, somebody's making this up. Um, first thing I do, go straight onto the BBC, and yeah. it's on their front page. Um, and at that point, you're like... Oh my God! You know what? What is going on? I mean, yeah, he's so influential. I mean, you look at sort of sort of things that he's covered over the years in his life. I mean, he, he sort of came out as to say, "Just be who you want to be, not mm. who everyone wants you to be." Yep. And, and that in back in the day was a bold statement to make. Yeah, and yeah. and he had no problem changing his image just. Because, yeah. got tired of the old one, let's do a new one. So I, I put a tweet out as soon as I heard saying that Ziggy, Ziggy was like a Time Lord. Mm-hmm. He regularly regenerated. And um, unfortunately, Time Lords run out of regenerations. Well, uh, unless they're written by Stephen Moffat. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to get around that, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so in his way, he was a time lord because you look you look at the different changes he's made over the years. He just reinvented himself all the way through his career, and uh, he was a chameleon. Mm-hmm. And so many people that he's worked with over the years that you don't realise that they're part of what David Bowie is. I mean, you look at the time when he was bringing out things like Let's Dance, and it was mm-hmm. you know Niall Rogers was producing his stuff back then and um, also David Bowie was working with back in the in the 60s Mott the Hoople with you know yep. all the long all the young dudes he was um, he played saxophone for for Mott the Hoople I think and which is uh, some people don't realise that he was such a fantastic sax player as well because he was he was an awesome sax player so yeah, he, he he has touched a lot of people in his career, and he is one of my idols. There's two people musically that 
uh, of Were Idols to Me or Are Idols to Me, David Bowie being one and Stevie Wonder being the other. Wow. I love Stevie Wonder. And uh, I know the music completely poles apart, but both of them are legends. Right across the community today, uh, especially in the Star Wars community, heavily people have been putting up pictures of Princess Leia with the, the Ziggy flash mm-hmm. across her face. There was a Stormtrooper like it. There was Boba yep. Fett. There was, you know, it really did touch the, the Star Wars community. And I think it does generally, the, the space community, because of the different songs that he made, were especially Space Odyssey. I mean, Chris Hadfield did his version, what, two years ago? Yeah, yeah. If that? Yeah. Um, and that was a, a big hit. That went viral like crazy. Oh, yeah, didn't it just... And Chris had some things to say on on social media today as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've we've all been pretty much touched by it. Yep, de- definitely gonna have to queue up Labyrinth and Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we get on to more uh, happier things? Yeah, definitely. So when we come back, uh, we'll get into stuff a little bit more spicy. I was asked a question this morning about space exploration and the fact that it was 54 years since Gagarin first flew. And when you think about that, it really brings home uh, that you are part of this long-standing tradition of human spaceflight. And certainly when you visit certain buildings, you're surrounded by uh, monuments and memorabilia to all the great achievements that have occurred throughout the years of human spaceflight. And it's very humbling to be a rookie astronaut immersed in that environment. Um, it certainly kind of puts a bit of pressure on the shoulders to keep the traditions alive and to keep those high standards and that high performance going. But also it's, uh, it's an atmosphere that's very supportive. Everybody is very supportive from all different cultures, all different countries, um, which is one of the great things about being in the program. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. So Google and the XPRIZE Foundation have uh, teamed up. Uh, They're offering $30 million to whichever private enterprise can soft land a robot on the surface of the moon and have it go a distance of 500 meters. So, you know, not just enough to get it up there. It's actually got to do stuff. Well, believe it or not, there's a team from Germany called the Part-Time Scientists, and... uh, they're they're working hard to try to get theirs up there, and they had a prototype at uh, CES, which just ended last week, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, for those of you who don't know, and they've actually got the backing of Audi, so there might actually be an Audi vehicle on the moon soon. You never know. To keep with the Audi name, it's called the Audi Lunar Quattro. The Audi I mean, Quattro. I, I'm assu- well, I mean, they call the, they have the Audi Quattro over here. I don't know if that's a global name for their cars. Yeah, well, it's this, here. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. And it's just a functional prototype, but it was on the show floor. And uh, so what they're doing is they're actually doing it with 3D printing mm-hmm. because apparently they're trying to do it in a way that machining can't really get as detailed as they want. So they're trying to make really, really small parts with it. And they say that when it comes to just, as they say, the axis of freedom to try to build it, they say that some of the parts are only one millimeter thick. That's going to be really difficult to do, machining or even with, with plastic injection. And what they're also trying to do is that they're going to try to have it so that maybe not with this one, but at least in the future, basically build highways on the moon, finding out ways to melt the uh, the. Regular materials that are there, mm-hmm. so that they can flatten it out 
instead of having it the soft, sandy-like material that it is right now. So basically, being as Audi are a German company, they're, they're trying to make an autobahn. Pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty much exactly what they're trying to do. Make, make an autobahn on the moon. So right now they're saying that uh, they're trying to get the price down to $30 million to be able to do this, but that doesn't even include getting it up there. Just from a science perspective, it's very cool. Whether it's going to happen or not is a different story, but it's just neat that they're actually trying to do this because obviously Mars has been getting a lot of, uh, you know, rover love, if you want mm-hmm. to put it. That sounds really awkward, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> so I guess it's, it is about time that we started sending stuff back to the moon. It's not like we know everything there is to know about it. This is this is one thing I, I don't understand. Yes, we've had a few missions to, to the moon, but... It, it's still basically, un, you know, footprints and, and, and flags. It's mm-hmm. Yes, we have got a bit of moon rock here, but there's still a hell of a lot we can learn from that. They've been trying this for a few years now. The X-Prize has been going for, oh, I don't know how many years they've been trying that now. Yeah. It's probably about nearly 10 years, I think, it's been, been going. Yeah, if, if somebody can actually finally commercially do that, it would be, be fantastic. They want to build a 3D printer that has all of the necessary materials as a part of it so that you can manufacture stuff on the moon that other rovers are going to need. Yeah, that and habitat and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, as we've, we've mentioned before, I mean, if you can get that up and running before people actually get there, that would be amazing and save a lot of time and effort, basically, because then all you need to do once you get there is research. <laughs> Now, have, have you seen these um, stamps that the the U.S. Postal Service have of uh, uh, got coming out this year? Of course, you <laughs> silly person, you. There's there's quite a few of them, aren't there? I mean, you've got the ones that they're bringing out that celebrate the New Horizon mission, mm-hmm. and then you've got all the rest of the planets as well. I, I know that Pluto Not isn't. Pluto. Uh, I still consider it a planet. <laughs> <laughs> That when when I was at school, it was a planet, so that's what I was taught. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, it's also hard to not consider it a planet now that we, you know, with New Horizons, it's like we're there, we can see it, we know what it looks like now. And have you seen some of the footage coming from that lately? Yeah, there's been some. They just oh. keep churning it out, done. Oh it's, man. Uh, but yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I I understand that <laughs> you, you kind of wish it would be part of the new stamp set. But I was reading this this little book that I had when I was at school. That these books are called ladybird books, and they're tiny books made for the wording is all set out for kids, and the illustrations in them are excellent. They're all hand drawn illustrations, and um, they've been going since probably the 1950s. Uh, this book is actually dated 1964. So some of the technology is a little bit out of date and some of the research is a little bit out of date. But I I actually highlighted a piece in the book that says, At the outermost edge of the sun's kingdom is the little world called Pluto, much smaller even than the Earth, 3,600 million miles from the sun. Beyond Pluto, there is empty space. And we are now discovering, nah, not empty space. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, but it, right. it was just that little paragraph in the book i was like yeah we've learned so much since this book was published <laughs> <laughs> yeah those pluto stamps are nice too i would kind of i don't know I mean, it, it's nice that you got the pluto with the heart on it mm-hmm. and then the new horizon but then it's just 
those repeated. It would have been nice to have gotten two more. There's you know, so much to maybe see. Maybe one of Caron. Yeah, one one of Caron and 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 probably one of the more up close pictures that they took which mm-hmm. you know with all the craters and troughs and everything else that was there would have been awesome on the stamp I think the ones of the planets are nice too the, the, you know nice full face bright they've also got some other stamps as well as the ones of all the planets because something is celebrating its 50th year this year isn't it maybe and I just <laughs> got a couple more grey hairs thinking about that <laughs> Yeah, because you've got the, the, the Star Trek stamps, uh, yep. which look really cool. I think I might have to get myself some of those. <laughs> <laughs> but there's four in the set, isn't there, for, for mm-hmm. the Star Trek. You've you've got one that's got the um, Star Trek insignia with mm-hmm. uh, the Enterprise flying through it. Uh, then you've got another one with uh, the Enterprise. Beaming out. Yep, there, there's that one. But you know, did you notice this, the background of that stamp is red? I think that guy's not coming back. Yeah. I, I, I think he's going to have similar problems we were having with the uh, the transporter over our Christmas episode, actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> And uh, what is it else you got? You've got the Enterprise uh, with planets and stars there. And then you've got another one with uh, Spock's Vulcan Salute uh, and the, the Enterprise whooshing past a, another planet. I mean, they're very basic, but... Yeah, but we're geeks, so they're automatically cool. Yeah, that's what I mean. These, <laughs> if you saw those stamps, not as stamps, but in the order that, that, that they showed them on the, on the uh, press releases, in a frame, as it was, as a full-size poster, you could say, yeah, that looks like an Andy Warhol or something, you know? Right. <laughs> Did you know that there's, uh, there's actually another set of stamps going to be coming out, uh, and it's just strictly the moon? Yes, I've seen those. Yep. Um, that's for the uh, for international postage, isn't it? I think they're yeah, what, one dollar yeah, twenty something. Yeah, they're called the Global Forever Stamp because I mean, over here, what we call it, we, we no longer have like for regular first class mail letters and so forth under a certain weight. We no longer worry about you know having exact amounts of cents and so forth. This is just called the Forever Stamp. So you could have a pack of Forever Stamps, and even if the postal rate rises then the forever stamp is still good. Yeah. Well, so that's how that works. But I just like these because this is the first time, and maybe it's just because I don't follow stamps, so maybe I just don't remember it, but they're actually round. I don't ever remember having a, a U.S. round stamp. I can't remember ever seeing one either, to be yeah, honest. That's why I was like, you know what? I mean, it's a nice picture of, of the moon, too. Uh, it's got that nice, like, gold haze to it, which which I thought was really cool. But I was just like, wow, a round stamp, that's actually kind of neat. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm gathering if you get the whole presentation set, would you get the moon and the planets, or would it be just you'd have to get them separately? I don't know. You know, I'd have to look on their site because I don't know when they're going to be available. I thought they're not going to be available till later this year. The the stamps will be dedicated between May the 28th and June the 4th at the World Stamp Show in New York. All of the postage can be pre-ordered 30 days after the dedication at uh, USPS.com. Well, it looks like everything is all done for the Philly Lander up on, uh, you know, up on that good old comet up there. Because uh, apparently yeah. they tried to do another signal yesterday. Yep, that's right. And uh, unfortunately, last I checked, which was this afternoon, they still haven't gotten a response. And now it's far enough away and it's in a position away from the sun that it's 
pretty much all done. Mm-hmm. So, looks like we've heard the last of it. They, like I said, they did try to send a, another power-on signal. Uh, actually, they, they tried to activate the uh, stabilizer, hoping to maybe shake some of the dust off the solar panels. Oh, uh, is that what it was? I heard that they were trying to send something to it to get it to... I thought, well, what's it got? Some yeah. kind of brush that it's got <laughs> no basically they're just gonna give it try to give it a little bit of a shake but I mean, for all we know it did do that but it wasn't enough to clear off the solar panels mm-hmm. and you know get enough from the sun to turn back on so um, yeah, yeah the flywheel that's what it was so they were gonna get the flywheel moving uh, and hopefully that could do a little bit to, to shake some dust off and unfortunately, they haven't gotten anything. So they say it's very unlikely that the robot will become functional again. So that's uh, that's basically it. That mission seems to be pretty much done. Yeah, I mean, he's done it before. Can do it again. <laughs> I, mean, well, I mean, at least for that, uh, I guess Rosetta, Rosetta, the yeah. one up above. They mm-hmm. still have to crash that on the surface. Yeah, but. And how when it comes to the actual lander, the Philae lander, that's it, it's it's done. That's all, folks. Because they kind of know where where Philae is now, so right. hopefully they can uh, bring Rosetta closer. So, so maybe we might get a a, a view of Philae before Rosetta uh, lands on the, on that would be comet. Neat. Yeah, it would be good, wouldn't it? The, fi- the final I views. was about to to bust your chops for being all sentimental about you know having the two being together but it actually would be kind of cool to see pictures of it on there before it, it hits yeah yeah that would be that was what my thoughts were was to you know the final the final views from Rosetta would be actually seeing Philae on the comet would be fantastic there's been a new discovery of some elements uh, on the periodic table recently. These have the uh, atomic numbers of uh, 113, 115, 117 and 118 and these have been synthesized as they've been uh, come from the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry or LUPAC <laughs> completing the seventh row of the periodic table. This is going to make things so complicated for people now when they're, when they're studying having these extra ones on there. It's hard enough trying to remember the periodic table as it is. Although those names are terrible. I mean, granted, they're, they're temporary, but those are just awful. Yeah. They couldn't have just called it like Temp 115. <laughs> you know. The thing is with them is that all of these elements are all heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been causing a little bit of... Um, controversy over a, a, a petition that's been launched yeah to try and get uh what number is it i think it's 113 which has got the initials lm uh and they want to get the name changed so that it becomes lemium mm-hmm. <laughs> because of lemmy from motorhead who passed on in December, you can't get any more heavy metal than Lemmy, to be <laughs> honest, can you really? And that would be so cool to have it named after him. Uh, but there is a problem with that because they say that it can't be changed. Uh, well, not to his name anyway, even though there's over 83,000 people that signed this petition. Yeah, well, you know, um, whatever. Problem is that elements have to be named after either their properties, a myth, 
a mineral, a place, or a scientist. Unfortunately, Lemmy wasn't any of these, but if they broaden the criteria to include rock and roll legends, he's Brian in with May. a chance. <laughs> Brian May. Yeah. He, he, he could qualify. He is a scientist. He is. And um, that's, I don't know, I mean, Queen wasn't exactly heavy metal, but... The thing is, I say a myth. Now, a myth is a legend. And oh, you're Lemmy stretching. is a legend. You're, stre- <laughs> <laughs> you're really stretching it there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the only petition that is out there because there's also been a petition to get Element 117. They, they want it to be named after something that terry pratchett was involved with the periodic symbol for 117 is oc and they want to name it after and i don't know if i'm actually pronouncing this correct it's octarine which is, is that the Discworld series yeah it's from Discworld. it's from the color of magic It's actually the color the, the mystical color from the color of magic so that's what they they want to do they've had over thirty thousand people sign the petition and that's had the official backing of terry pratchett's Twitter account, so I don't know who's running that for him and now that he passed on. If they can make the rules saying this is what it has to be named after, well, they can change the rules too. I, I, I don't care either way if it's named after uh, Lemmy or not, but they gotta name it something. It's fun and I think if they if they named things after like these two that they want to, it, it would be more fun to learn and you'd definitely remember it. That's true. <laughs> and, and insects can be named. I mean, David Bowie has a spider named after him. Yeah, he does. You know, so why not? Terry Pratchett, it said here somewhere, he's had a lot of other things named after him. Oh, yeah, it's the Scythothorus Terry Pratchetti, which is a species of turtle, similar to the one that Discworld is supposed to be on, because it's supposed to be the planet is supposed to be flat on the back of a giant turtle. Right. Right. So See, I can go for the Discworld reference, if only because it, it's been argued... Or argued? Did I really say that? Wow. <laughs> it's, it's been argued, and I agree with this, that what we talk about mythology and we think about, you know, whether it's religious myth or Roman or Greek or whatever, well, what is science fiction except our modern-day myth? Yeah. Science fiction is our mythology. So if they're saying, well, it's gonna, it has to be based on myth, then it should count when it comes to science fiction. So go ahead and name it after uh, whatever that word was from Discworld. <laughs> you know, go ahead. I, I'm actually all for that. But and it fits. As far as I'm concerned, it's within their qualifications. You look at Greek mythology. I mean, that's basically just stories. It, it's folklore yeah. of its day. Um, science fiction, uh, the different categories of science fiction where you, you, you're talking um, Star Trek, Star Wars, they've got their own folklore, mm-hmm. which is exactly the same. I, I'd say go, go go ahead, go for that. I, I'm, I'm just trying to make it easy for all these poor guys and girls that are trying to, trying to learn the periodic table, which is really hard. And <laughs> I say that one of the other elements ought to be called Romulanium. <laughs> Romulanium. <laughs> what? I don't know, it just popped into my head. <laughs> but you'd remember it. That's, yes, you would. You would definitely. And it, it does, you know, Romulanium. It does kind of roll off the tongue. <laughs> now, with those four things, there have only been two of the elements, though, that have actually been been verified, right? 
As far as I know, yeah. yeah. I, I actually think it is 113 and 117 that have actually been um, verified. Is the, the other two haven't as of yet. It's, it's amazing that they, they are discovering new things like this all the time. It's not great for the people studying it. Doing things like this, I think, would help make it easier. Yeah. Romulanium. <laughs> telling you. You're going to have to get in touch with these people at Lupac. Romulanium would also fit because Romulus was actually named after the founder of Rome. So it fits with Roman mythology. Uh, Remus and Romulus. Romu- yes, Romulus and Remus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm on it. Oh. <laughs> I want credit for this, damn it. <laughs> so speaking of comets, obviously in, a, in relation to my previous article, we've got another one out there that probably a lot of people haven't heard of called Comet Catalina. And it's making its pass by to Earth. It's, well, January 17th is when it's going to be... Um, it's closest flyby. Okay. Just for those of us in the northern hemisphere, those of you down south, unfortunately, if you want to see it, you're going to have to take a flight up north. But uh, apparently, it's going to be really bright. You might be able to see it with the naked eye if you have like re- like no light pollution. But otherwise, you'll just need a telescope or some binoculars. But what makes this unique is that the angle that it's currently at relative to ours looks like it has two tails. Okay. So and then they're they're going in almost opposite directions. So I mean that makes it very easy to spot. But the thing with this comet is once it's gone, it's gone. Wow. So something happened that it just picked up a lot of speed, something maybe bumped it or whatever on its way in this time around, and it's now got so much energy that once it heads back out, it's going to escape the sun completely. So it, it, they, they call that a hyperbolic orbit, but basically it means it's doing a slingshot and it's heading away and that's it. Okay, yeah. So never be seen again. Uh, one shot and it's gone, that sort of thing. Now, whether it's going to do a slingshot around the sun, go back and rescue the whales, and then come forward in time, I have no idea. Bad Star Trek Four joke. Okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> this is me. I had to do it. But, uh, so, yeah, January 17th is when it's going to be its closest. So uh, you're just going to have to look up and see if you can find it. Yeah, that would be so cool. And, and imagine, because we've got the, the run-up to... Um Stargazing Live, which starts on the BBC tomorrow, they're going to be talking a lot about that, I would imagine. So, oh, sure. I'm because you can see it with the naked eye. Yeah. You know, well, you might be able to see it with the naked eye, but at least you won't need super high power telescopes to, to see it. That's true. I just have to figure out which direction that's coming from, see if I can get a good view from here. That'd be great. Yeah, considering that it's. I mean, I remember the Hale-Bopp that also had two tails to it. That you could very easily see with the naked eye. I remember yeah. that one very clearly. Um, this one, yeah, you can't really see it that easily, but still, it's got just the fact that it looks like it has two tails, and we'll no one will ever see it again after us. So you've got to make an effort to see it, folks. got to make an effort to see it. Russian President Vladimir Putin has officially put an end to the country's federal space agency, Roscosmos, on December the 28th by signing a decree dissolving the agency. The resolution went into force on January the 1st, uh, when the space agency was replaced by, well, Roscosmos. Cosmos, basically, <laughs> by it was the Federal Space Agency, and now it's the Roscosmos State Corporation, 
But what does it actually mean for the space industry? The change is part of a reorganisation of the Russian space sector that actually started more than two years ago in 2013. The United Rocket and Space Corporation, or URCS, was formed by the Russian government to renationalise the national space sector. The reason why they've done it is uh, there's been a lot of failures within the um, Russian Space Agency over the last few months, and a lot of money has been bleeding out of uh, out of it, and they've been making a lot of losses. In the future, the government should try and carry out liquidation procedures as well as provide the agency's employees with legal guarantees and compensation, which sounds like they're going to be getting rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. Putin's move to centralise Russian space sector is a response to a series of problems, like I mentioned, that have really embarrassed the country, basically. It, it is all about face, I think. The Rosmakos State Corporation will seek solutions to minimise spending on launches to compete with the commercial launch providers such as SpaceX, United Launch Alliance and Ariane Space. If you notice, they didn't mention NASA. <laughs> well, you know... They, they don't see NASA as competition. <laughs> well, they believe that such solutions can be found. Cheaper launches could help Roscosmos... Uh, attract more commercial customers currently choosing other companies to send their payloads into orbit. Um, in, a, in a way, I see their point, though, because even NASA has been subcontracting out to SpaceX and other places. You know, Yes, they do have successes with stuff like the rovers and with New Horizons, yep. but when it comes to the space station, yeah, it really kind of has gone down to more of the, the private companies to take care of that. Mm-hmm. Very true. So I, I kind of, I don't doubt that there was a political uh, undertone to that. It sounds but, like it. You know, I, I can see where they're going with that. Um, of course, what you know. Then again, I'm just, uh, you know, old, I'm, I'm just an old Yankee. So anything that I say about the, the good old Russians will probably be political undertones on my part too. <laughs> he says, however, this is unlikely to happen because a report appearing in Space.com two years ago listed the price that NASA pays per seat on one of Russia's Soyuz spacecraft at $70.7 million. Shortly after confirming that they had successfully landed the first stage of a full-thrust Falcon, Ro- Falcon 9 rocket back at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, the company's founder, um, this is SpaceX's uh, company's founder, Elon Musk, noted that the rocket cost... Uh, was approximately $60 million per booster. Uh, This does not take into account that the cost of the Dragon spacecraft that they would be seating in, the fact that the crude variant of the Dragon and possibly portions of the Falcon 9 rocket could be reused, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and thus potentially lowering the amount SpaceX can charge to send crews into orbit. And that no part of either the Soyuz rocket or the spacecraft can be reused, suggesting that Roscosmos State Corporation might be facing a pretty much uphill struggle unless they can come up with a Soyuz with reusable boosters. 
I think it could be done. I would assume it could. I mean, they just have to... I'm not saying that it's easy to figure out. Obviously, SpaceX has been having their problems, but I'm sure that they could do it if they if they tried enough. Got the old gyroscope stabilized and all that other good stuff. I'm sure they could do it. I mean, if they can do that, they might be competition for some of the other commercial companies because that is what it sounds like they are doing. They're, they're turning uh, Roscosmos into a commercial company. Um, yeah, and... I get it because, you know, SpaceX has proven what they can do. Uh, Amazon, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos, he's proven what he can do. They've pretty much done the same kind of thing with a different with a different style vehicle. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And and now Russia's like, oh, we don't have anything like that. And I mean, let's let's not deny that the issues of space garbage and stuff like that, it's becoming a problem. So the more stuff that can be sent back down to Earth in one piece, the better. Yeah. Granted, that stage wouldn't have stayed up there anyway, so it's not like that could have become space garbage. But, you know, still, just, just the thought of being able to say, hey, we can reclaim this, and we can reuse it. That That's a cool thing. <laughs> Talking of which, have you, I don't know if you've seen the stories about SpaceX trying to decide what they're actually going to do with the, uh, the stage they recovered. I thought they said they were just going to hold on, like, make it a museum piece or yeah. something to that. Well, you know, honestly, I don't blame them. It's, it's, it's trying to figure out where they're going to put it. It's, yeah. it's more because it's quite a big piece to um, put somewhere. Sure. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that the Smithsonian hangar, the the one out in Virginia, I'm sure they would find room for it. Oh yeah. <laughs> out, out at the annex, because that is, uh, yeah, I saw that and you kind of scratch your head and think, well, isn't the whole idea to be reusable? And now they're not going to reuse it. Well, yeah, but this is a first of its kind. The first time, a lot they did with the with the first dragon. I mean, that's that right. is. Up in the rafters in in the uh, in, in the main place at Hawthorne, isn't it? Yeah, looking fantastic, hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that rocket, they're going to try it again. They certainly are. January seventeenth, they're going to try another water-based landing. They're going to try it again with the Falcon Nine landing in the Pacific Ocean this time. Uh, during the Jason Three mission launch from Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Now, I will admit, though, considering that they've already proven that they can do it on land, why risk losing this one by trying to do it? Unless they're just doing it to say, hey, let's try to get this one right. Well, the last one was the other side of the coast, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there chances that it's going to be a bit calmer on the Pacific, or would that be just as rough? Well, I guess it also depends on which direction it's going to take off. I mean, normally, like when all the shuttles and so forth took off, they actually took more of an easterly direction. Yeah. But I guess in this case, they're going to go westerly. Uh, At this point, I can only speculate as to why they're doing it. But it it might just be because they said, hey, you know, last time we got really close to landing it on water. Mm -hmm. Let's try it again. And they have made a few more modifications as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, they're going to be landing on a different barge because right. they'll be landing on what's it called this one um top yeah, of my head. just read the instructions <laughs> that's what this <laughs> one's called so um hopefully they'll have better luck on the pacific than they did on the atlantic you know and even if they don't and they say okay you know what we're just going to stick with land based that's a guess on my part and um also in the pipeline this year is the dragonfly which i'm looking forward to them trying out it's the um what they hope to be using again the reusable dragon capsule they're going to be doing some tests 
just a few feet in the air. When I say a few feet, it's going to be about 80, 90 feet in the air on a crane to start off with. Then they're going to do it from a helicopter and then they're going to do it properly. Um, we know that it can work because they have tried those Super Dracos when they did the um, the abort mm. tests. Right, right, right. Because they actually got those Super Dracos to flip that thing over and, and uh, splash land, but they haven't actually used it to like they did with the Falcon 9. So that'll be interesting. I'm not too sure when that's going to take place, but it's going to be later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is all very exciting times for SpaceX, really. <laughs> Virgin Galactic is almost back conducting its test flights again. Uh, Spaceship 2, or SS2, tail number 2, I don't know, uh, <laughs> will be unveiled at a special event held in the Mojave uh, Air and Spaceport, according to a report appearing in GeekWire. The debut is scheduled for February the 19th, with several Virgin Galactic VIPs and the company's founder, Richard Branson, scheduled to attend Stephen Hawking, the only person to date to receive a free ticket for a flight on Spaceship Two, has not only been invited to attend the rollout of the new spacecraft, but he will also be naming the new spacecraft as well. At a recent meeting of Virgin Galactic customers at Cambridge University, Hawking said, I found myself with what I understand is the only free ticket for a Virgin Galactic space flight that Richard has ever handed out. And knowing Richard a little, I can believe that this is true. He has continued to press for the development of space colonies uh, so as to maximise human uh, survivability. Is that a real word? Survivability? Yeah. Um, should uh, a cataclysmic event occur on Earth. Nearly 700 customers have already signed up for the $250,000 suborbital tourist flights. Virgin Galactic has stated that the commercial operations will begin, but only after Spaceship 2 has passed all the required test flights. 700 people at $250,000. That's a lot of money. Yeah, but that's wow. that's a hell of an experience. Oh, yeah, I'm not denying that. I mean, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I mean, when you're paying that sort of money, it obviously is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the Red Planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov.
blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. The James Webb Space Telescope Mirror is now halfway complete. So it's, when it's all done, it's going to be comprised of eight mirrors that are all put together into the into the telescope. And right now, it looks like they've got nine of them all taken care of. Now, each one, it's, it's hexagonal shaped that measure about one, three meters or 4.2 feet uh, in size. And each one is roughly 88 pounds or 40, 40 kilograms. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all being pieced together. Once this thing is all done, and they expect it to be finished early, well, actually early this year, uh, that thing is going to be 21 feet, or six and a half meters across. That's a big honking mirror. It is. Basically, this one is the successor to the Hubble, and it's being built in conjunction with ESA and the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, the article here doesn't say when that's expected to go up, however. Yeah, it's been put back and put back and put back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I've got the, my next article actually involves the successor to this, which Congress has approved funding for. So I'm guessing that that means that the uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be heading up there soon. Right. So, and that's being uh, that puppy's being assembled in Greenbelt, Maryland, which that's not too far from here either. Mm-hmm. But it's neat to see and to think that that thing is going to be over 20 feet wide. That's a monster. It's huge. It's good to see that there's a bit more funding coming out there because I've been reading that according to representatives within NASA, two planetary programs that were being eyed for fund chopping will be operated through 2016. Neither NASA's Mars Exploration Rover Opportunity or the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter was funded for 2016 under NASA's original budget request. For some reason, they've been given this boost of $1.27 billion, mm-hmm. uh, which has rectified that problem, which is really cool because the, the rovers have proved themselves time and time again. Oh, yeah. What it says here, this is a quote from David Schur who's the Deputy Director of NASA's Planetary Sciences Division. NASA will continue operating the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Opportunity Rover on Mars in FY financial year 2016. These abbreviations everywhere. Um, Government. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I I guess that uh, Congress has just said, hey, look at these successes in New Horizon and so forth. Yeah, maybe we ought to just give them more money. I don't know. I don't trust any politician, so who knows Who knows what their reason was. Talking of which, is it kind of going back to David Bowie, actually. One of our radio stations during their news this morning, actually, the newsreader had to uh, correct herself because she actually said that David Cameron had died. I heard about that. Right now, 8.30, here's the latest. From Global's Newsroom, I'm Fiona Winchester. David Cameron has died... <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Which I don't think a lot of people would have been too bothered about, to be honest. Probably with not. <laughs> Probably not. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I heard about that little gap. I thought Oops. about better mention that. It's one of the radio stations I don't like anyway, so it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's one of these um, radio stations that, are, or the the company that owns the radio station, is trying to take over the country. 
It's, it's one of those. <laughs> it's all the little rain. Is that a Rupert Murdoch property? Yeah, I don't think so. They, they, they call themselves global, and oh. uh, we we call it the the global domination policy. Um, they're taking over all the little regional stations, so they're all going to sound the same, so there, there isn't any regionality anymore, which I hate. The only time you get to hear regional stuff is during drive time and um, breakfast, when right. you know traffic can travel and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the rest of the day, every one of those stations plays the same music. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that. So um, yeah, so when they when they foul up like that, I don't care. <laughs> I find it amusing. <laughs> nice. Do you remember last month when I mentioned there was a power failure on one of the solar arrays uh, attached to the ISS that would need to be fixed in the new year? I do. Well, Tim Peake is to carry out the first ever spacewalk by a British astronaut, so NASA has confirmed. Tim Peake and NASA astronaut Tim Copra will make the repairs. The two Tims <laughs> will don their spacesuits and exit the US Quest airlock to replace the electrical box known as the Sequential Shunt Unit, the SSU. Gotta have your acronym. <laughs> which regulates voltage from the station's solar arrays. Uh, its failure on the 13th of November last year compromised one of the station's eight power channels. The unit is relatively easy to replace and can be removed by undoing one bolt, basically. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, once this task is complete, the spacewalkers will deploy cables in advance of a new docking port for the commercial crew vehicles. Oh, I thought they'd already done that. And uh, reinstall a valve that was removed for relocation of the station's Leonardo module last year. On Twitter, the British astronaut said he was thrilled to be assigned to do a spacewalk, adding, lots of work to do before Tim Coper and I can open the hatch. Tim Peake supported a spacewalk on the 21st of December last year, in which Tim Copra and Station Commander Scott Kelly moved the stalled component known as the Mobile Transporter to the outside of the ISS. The, the Britons stayed inside the ISS, helping the Americans don their spacesuits and monitoring their progress for mission control. This time, Tim Peake will be able to get inside one of the uh, extra uh, I can never say extra molecular mobile units or EMUs. That is why they use acronyms because <laughs> I can't pronounce it, which is the spacesuit used by the US and the European astronauts on board the station. Oh, I'm sure they're going to be having an awesome time out there anyway. Uh, as long as he concentrates on what he's doing instead of going, hey, look at that. Well, I mean, no, let's face it. The first few minutes, I'm sure they're going to be having a lot of, oh, wow, look at that. But then after that, it's like, okay, I'm out in space. If anything goes wrong... yeah. Yeah, I think it'll be really easy for them. Let's to get, just make get their sure that this this um, this leash is uh, securely fastened to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I've got the uh, I've got a 3D TV, and I've got the IMAX 3D uh, discs for um, Space Station 3D and and Hubble. Oh yeah, yeah, and they do a really, really, really good job on making you feel like. Oh wow! There's a lot of space out here. <laughs> you know, 
one thing goes wrong, and plus I've seen enough, you know, like battles, the, the old Battlestar Galactica where, was it Battlestar Galactica? I might be thinking of another one where it's like they, uh, no, it was the original where they're doing work on the outside and they moved and then they slipped and missed one of the, one of the handlebars. Oh yeah. And they're floating out in space. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, thinking of stuff like that, I, I can imagine just like, okay, let's just get this work done so I can get back to the safety of the interior. It's like when, when they had the, uh, the, what was it? called the MMU like the kind of like the space jetpack mm-hmm. yeah yeah. I thought yeah that's really cool but what happens when that runs out of propulsion you're in trouble yep so yeah I, I always worried me when well, cause they didn't use it very often did they yeah. I don't think so because that was another 80s invention that kind of was yeah, like and it was also big and bulky, bulky. I mean, it, it yeah. definitely had its purposes but once they had the Canada arm installed mm-hmm. did they really need it not really <laughs> Okay, well, I mentioned the uh, James Webb Telescope. Now they're already talking about its successor. Uh, this is going to be the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, which, yes, it does have an acronym, an acronym of WFIRST, I guess, is the best way to pronounce it. <laughs> so <laughs> this has been funded by Congress. Actually, it's, it, it was kind of interesting because NASA requested $14 million and Congress gave them 90 That's a big increase. Well, I mean, it's not just for this, but it's for a bunch of other things. Even with that funding, they're still going to have to cut the budget in other programs. Go figure. I'm not quite sure how that all works. But still, it's going to be a space telescope focusing on infrared. I don't really have anything in here. They did say that they didn't expect it to formally start until 2017, but since Congress has appropriated the money, they're going to start working on it this year. Uh, And I love this. The Senate report that authorized all of this came back and said, The committee has accelerated this key mission recommended by the Decadal Survey and and expects it to achieve overlap and scientific synergy. Buzzword alert. With Hubble and the James Webb Telescope. (laughs) Scientific synergy? Oh, make me puke. (laughs) Really? See, I'm surprised they didn't mention, you know, paradigm shift. (laughs) Now, this thing is going to have two main instruments. One is going to be a wide-field camera, and the other one's going to be a chronograph that can be used to directly observe extrasolar planets. So they expect this to have a prime mission life of about six, of at least six years. They're estimating that the whole thing for this is going to cost about two to two point three billion dollars. As much as we love Hubble, and it, it would be nice if they can keep it going mm-hmm. as long as you know it, it doesn't cost that much to keep it upgraded. But could you imagine having three space telescopes up there at the same time? Hubble alone is amazing. And that's the oldest of the three. So to think about what some of these newer ones could do in conjunction with that, I'm drooling already. The, the thing is, they're going to be using different methods, aren't they? So that they're going to be looking for different things. Sure, sure. So uh, to, to have all three in place, well, you'd think they'd have everything covered, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, that, that's when you're going to need the, the Ultra HD TVs just to look at some of the images. Oh, yeah, definitely. The technology is just getting to a point now where you, you don't have to imagine anymore because it's it's there. No. Um, yeah, it is. And look at Pluto. Look at the images we're getting from Pluto, and the technology on that is at least at least 10 years old. At least, yeah, because it was, it was launched in 2005, so we're talking... I would imagine the camera and, and that were, was 
probably not one of the first things that was installed anyway. No. Uh, so we're probably talking 15 years, I would say. Yeah, so. yeah they probably based it on the camera and, and what they could get with that. Because mm-hmm. doesn't that thing... I'm pretty sure, doesn't that only have like an 8 gig, basically SD card for the memory? I think it is, yeah. So it's, it's got to be constantly um, uploading stuff just to clear the card. Can you imagine how much stuff that was pushing out when it was actually at Pluto. Uh, there must be absolutely just stacks of it. Absolutely stacks of it. <laughs> so yeah, oh. it'll be exciting to see what these new telescopes can deliver. Yeah, definitely. There's a school not too far from here in a place called St Albans, which is in, in Hertfordshire. And it's called Sandringham School. And it's made history by making the first amateur radio call from the UK to a British astronaut on board the space station well we know who that is it's obviously Tim Peake <laughs> um, for a short period it looks like the connection wasn't going to be made the radio equipment was set up in the school hall and it was using a local dish which was connected to the famous earth station at uh, Goon Hilly in Cornwall now I have some audio from the event do you want to have a, a, a listen to that sure Just a reiteration, tablets, mobile phones, we need them switched off, not flight mode. We want them switched off, please. Uh, So good luck, Jessica. Really good. And let's uh, enjoy the contact with Tim. GB1SS, GB1SS, this is GB1SAN calling and standing by, over. Golf Bravo 1 Sierra Sierra GB1 SS GB1 SS This is GB1 SAN calling and standing by over Golf Bravo 1 Sierra Sierra GB1 SS This is Golf Bravo 1 Sierra Alpha November calling and standing by over Hello, Golf Bravo 1 Sierra Alpha November. This is Golf Bravo 1 Sierra Sierra on Charlie 6. I read you loud and clear. Over. GB1SS from GB1SAN. Great to hear you, Tim. This is Jessica, Mike 6, Lima, Papa Juliet from Sandingham School in St. Albans. Are you ready for your first question? Over. Hi, I'm Hugo. What do you think Isaac Newton would say if he knew that the name of your mission was based on his book? Over. I Hugo. I think uh, I'd like to think that Isaac Newton would be honoured that uh, Principia was chosen as a mission name in honour of his life's work and uh, you know his understanding of physics and the universe, which all of our knowledge has been built upon. Hi, I'm Imogen. If you had a liquid hydrocarbon in space, would the intermolecular forces be strong enough to hold it in a ball of liquid? Over. Hello, I'm Imogen. If you had a liquid hydrocarbon in space, would the intermolecular forces be strong enough to hold it in a ball of liquid? Over. I Imogen, that's a great question. And yes, you're absolutely right. The uh, liquid... Um the intermolecular forces in a liquid, the cohesion is stronger than the adhesion to the air, and so it would form a sphere. The surface tension would be great enough to make uh, a hydrocarbon, a liquid hydrocarbon, form a sphere. Hi, it's Philip. 
How is rapid cooling of liquid metals performed in the EML experiment? Over. I think, well, EML Hi, it's Jess. The EML is being used to study alloy structure and formation. What are the benefits of using space as a scientific platform? Over. Hi Jess, well up here in space we can study things that we can't study back on Earth because we're here in microgravity, so in the absence of gravity all sorts of different things happen. And that's really the huge benefit of the space station as a research platform is the microgravity. I don't think Tim was expecting those kind of questions. Those were good questions, <laughs> Weren't <though>. they? <laughs> I can just imagine he was on Google going, hang on a minute. Um, <laughs> those are some really, really good questions. <laughs> but it was amazing to get the kids involved like that. And that was one of the first things Tim was promoting before he went up into space, was that he wanted to... Uh, do this radio connection with with earth that's the first school i think there's two other schools that he's going to be connecting up with as well oh i was blown away by it the first time i heard it i've had to cut that down a bit because there was a lot of gaps where she had to keep repeating the the call sign and everything because she wasn't right. hearing anything at all and as i said for what there was a moment where they thought it wasn't going to happen yeah i'm i'm, I'm hoping it's this kind of thing that will get the kids excited and really want want to get involved but it does actually prove that i mean they must be learning about some of these subjects there for them to bring up these questions the one about the hydrocarbon is like what <laughs> and and then that's why they had to repeat the question i think because it was okay <laughs> yeah, yeah i can see the look on his face like whoa i wasn't <laughs> expecting that i was like oh what's it like floating in around in a in a can you know that kind of question not uh <laughs> deep scientific questions straight at him from the word go you're right <laughs> <laughs> obviously something as big as the universe is kind of hard to comprehend just a little bit you know when you can have hubble focus on what looks like an empty spot of space and then suddenly oh yeah it's actually got hundreds of galaxies there you know it's kind of hard to envision what is all out there in the universe but a guy by the name of Pablo Carlos Budasi, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> has come up with what is called a logarithmic scale conception of the observable universe. So basically what it does is it looks like a big circle, and for every step out, it basically goes out by a factor of 10. So the solar system is in the middle, and then you've got you know one unit, and then a little bit farther out is 10 units. Then the next unit would be 100 or 1,000. If you've ever seen a video called, uh, look it up on YouTube. They showed it over here in the U.S. a while ago, but it's called Power of 10. Uh -huh. And they, they kind of do that on the same scale. They start off at Earth, and then they just slowly pan out. But for every segment, it's a power of 10. And they just keep going and going and going and going. And then eventually it reaches, it reaches a spot where suddenly it goes into reverse, and then suddenly it goes into the microscopic world by powers of 10. And it's a real, it's an old video, the like mid to late 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. 
but it's really cool to watch and it just lets you know how huge things are you know and again they even go into the microscopic world but what this does is kind of the same thing so for every unit out it goes out by a power of 10 and then they try to give a diagram of the observable universe you know this guy just tried to come up with a way and to look at it it's it's actually it's hard to describe it kind of looks like you might expect it to be like a stained glass window in a church all right yeah just because of when you look at it that's kind of the, th the thing you think of and the raw resolution of this that he made is 4200 by 4200 pixels so it's it's big yeah, it's a decent-sized image, mm. but it's just one of those where it's like, it's a relatively easy way to kind of observe what we can see in the in the universe. Because you know, they've got Andromeda and other galaxies that we know of, uh, as well as going to the Outer Rim and so forth. And it's just a really neat way to, to try to compress, if you want to call it that, what we see in the universe into a single image. It's neat to look at. I could... I could actually see me putting that up on a wall. Yeah, that would be really cool. If I had the wall space, I'd probably do it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there is that. Yeah, because, oh, man. Yeah, that would have to be pretty big to be able to appreciate it. But it is neat to see. He collected the data over, or, or should I say, it was taken from images collected over the past 15 years uh, using the telescope at the Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico. He just got all those images, and he was like, what's a good way to represent all of this? And he came up with this logarithmic scale image that uh, it really is neat to look at. Yeah, I, I have I have seen that in passing, actually, because it's one of the pictures, I think, that uh, one of our listeners actually put in the timeline. So I'll um, have to get that and put it in the uh, in, in the show notes. Going back to, back to Tim again. <laughs> I can feel your pride from here. <laughs> he's doing this thing called hashtag space rocks um now what he's doing is uh, every couple of days he tweets lyrics from a space related song and asks you to tweet back to him uh with the song that it came from and the the artist or band that performed it with the hashtag space rocks and your names will be picked out at random and if you get picked there's a special space patch that's been made specially for space rocks. And on this patch is an electric guitar with the Union Jack on the guitar with the guitar plugged in to the space station and the guitar is floating in space. And underneath it, it's got hashtag space rocks with Astro Tim Peak. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So all these little things that he's come up with before he launched, a lot of these lyrics that he's coming out with are not stuff that kids would remember because some of these stuff is, you know, there's 60s or 70s stuff on there. Mm -hmm. But there is some modern stuff on there as well. I, I check them out every time. I've, I think I've done like three of them now. So I'm hoping that I get one of these <laughs> one of these patches but obviously they won't be sorted out until he comes back to to earth so that's going to be in 6 months and I'll probably be forgotten about it by then <laughs> I've got a picture of one of these these patches which I'll put up in the show notes so everyone can have a look at what I'm going on about but it's it's quite a cool patch to be honest it it kind of reminds me of either an Australian flag or a um, New Zealand flag Mm -hmm. a little bit because you know you've got all the stars on, on both their flags 
uh, with the little Union Jack in the corner kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of that. I just thought it was a really cool thing to do. Well, you know, but it's for science. It is. It certainly is. And, and if it inspires people to... Well, not necessarily to get involved in science, but to to view what's going on out there, to see what the mm-hmm. different agencies and the commercial partners are doing and, and everything. For me, that's that's great as well because that's how I started uh, getting involved in it was just by watching with my grandfather and it went from there and well it's it's more than just a, a hobby it's well pretty much an obsession actually I should send you a, a picture I got my patch for uh, supporting the light sale Kickstarter project oh you got it yeah I got it oh, so cool. I haven't gotten my my actual piece yet. I'm supposed to also be getting a one centimeter uh, square piece of, of a light sail as well. But I uh, got the patch. Man, I should I should take a picture of that and send that to you. Yeah, awesome. Did you get that up to the site? I've, I've also um, sourced somewhere, well, it's a place I use a lot actually to, to get my patches from. Uh, and now they've got an Expedition 46 patch. Uh, so I'll be getting one of those. But obviously... Tim's on Expedition 46 and 47 during these six months, and that won't be available till the end of March when the changeover of crew on the space station happens. So that will be when Scott Kelly and um, Mikhail goes back to Earth. That'll be the end of their year. So Tim will be able to see them off, which will be cool. I don't think he'll become commander, though. (laughs) I can't see it. I don't think he's... He's got enough space time, if you know what I mean, to become right. a commander. I don't know what needs to be done to for, for that sort of thing, unfortunately. I, I think it's more on experience, really, of I'm sure. dealing with the space station. So they'd, they'd really need someone who's, who's been up there a couple of times and to, to become commander, I would have thought. Yeah, that might be something that's worth looking up, find out what, what experience you actually need to be classed as a commander. That could be a question to ask one of them, actually. See, yeah. I was just thinking, that would be a great excuse to get someone on the show. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the same wavelength here. And do you know who's in the country at the moment? Oh, who? Chris Hatfield. Oh, is he? Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> He's a celebrity now. Good luck. <laughs> you know who might know? Maybe Richard Garriott. This is true. This is very true. Ooh. Yeah, that was awesome just, just before Christmas getting the, the uh, photo of him with his with his mission patch. <laughs> that, that really did make my day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Richard probably would know. I, I would think. I would think. Yeah. Even if, not even from his own experience, but from his dad. Mm, this is true, because his dad was on um, on Skylab. So uh-huh. um, uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know, that was uh, Richard Garriott's dad is Owen Garriott. And um, if you don't know what's going on while we're talking about Richard, go back to April last year for our Yuri's Night episode mm-hmm. of the show. And it was a, an awesome episode. It really was. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got a lot a lot covered in that episode, I think. I still smile when I think about that one. <laughs> The Curiosity rover up on Mars, it's still bringing back amazing pictures. So the latest one is that uh, it, it took a panoramic view with its mast camera 
and it's just it's just a whole thing of the active sand dunes and so forth. This one is called the uh, the Namib Dune. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's a, it also includes a portion of Mount Sharp way out on the horizon. And it's it's they've made it as real color as possible. They admit that they had to do some white balancing and so forth to make it appear as it would have appeared here on Earth. But it, it's just an amazing thing to watch. And like I said, it's a, it's a panorama so that when you look at the center of it, it's eastern. But the, both, both of the ends are the western view. And it's just amazing to, to see these images and to realize these are still coming back from another planet. Yeah, they are amazing pictures. And every time you see a new set of pictures, it's almost like a completely different planet. Because mm-hmm. the different regions are completely different from each other. And according to this one, it says that the uh, mission's examination of dunes in the Bagnold field uh, is the first close look at active sand dunes anywhere other than Earth. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, just, it's just mind-blowing to look at this image and think, well, I mean, it's about as real on the color that they can get. And it's, it's just amazing to think that that's not here. And, and that, little, that little device is still going. The, the, the rovers and New Horizons really are the two things that are in the public eye right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, the rovers have always been in the public eye since they got up there. But I, I just can't imagine that those two won't get continual funding for at least several more years. It's, it's really strange, you know, within the last, I would say, three or four years, people's responses to non-human space flight have excelled. Obviously, Rosetta helped as well. Mm-hmm. Oh um, yeah, yeah. But if you, if you put all the different agencies together and, and whatever, people's excitement has has grown dramatically. And then to put the cherry on the cake, as it were, was was New Horizons. People just exploded with with their feelings about about it. And and as you say, this is probably the reason why. The Senate have now said, right, we, we ought to start putting some money into this, mm-hmm. which is really good. I mean, the, the UK Space Agency have started plowing a bit more money into it and into sciences, into industry, which can only be a good thing. Yeah, it'd be so. nice if they pumped more. But you know what? Hey, an increase is an increase. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. I think that's it. That's it, yeah. Well, we'll be back later on in a month and it'll be, well, non spicy and more, well, everything else that we've got out there tech. I'd, I'd imagine. You know damn well Star Wars is going to have a significant portion of it. Yeah, and uh, we'll because <laughs> uh, I know you, you've been me- you're going to be mentioning some stuff on yours on, on your podcast, only from the uh, the show in Vegas. Oh, the, but, some uh, electronic show. Yeah, we yeah. can cover we can cover some of that stuff too. So I think we should uh, power down for another show. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, as always, it's a pleasure having you on the show, sir. It's a pleasure being on the show, sir. So thanks to everyone for listening in, and uh, we'll speak to you again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. You can find a link on our podcast pages. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages, and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.